Vino Week, episode 21, brought to you by Vino 101. All right, welcome to Vino Week. I'm Bill. Hello, everybody. This is Al. Glad you could attend another week of uh, fun and frolic with the uh, the wine crew here. Yeah, and, and the, the wine world as it is. Keeps on going, man. It's like a soap opera. Yeah, well, and, you know, as the world turns, right, so as the, as the harvest ends, how's that for a segue? That's um, a good segue. Harvest, the harvest has ended, except for people that are making something, I guess, late harvest or, I don't know, if you're looking for that super, super ultra-concentrated wine. Yeah. But at, at some point, you're going to start making wine out of raisins. Yeah. So. And I don't know what it's like in Europe, but here, certainly here in Napa and Sonoma Valley, it's ended and it's ended early. Um, yeah, you know, because of the dry weather and the heat that we had this year. I mean, we, we're still, it's still, I mean, it was in the 80s yesterday here. So it, it's really uh, uh, unusual. I'm loving it. You know, one of the reasons it ended early is, if you recall, it started early. You know, we had a very, very dry winter. Yeah, we had a warm winter, too. Yeah. I mean, it and, was... uh, you know, once the buds break, you know, it's just... You know, you got a, a cycle. It's X number of days, and uh, if you if you if the buds break early, you know you're gonna. There's a good chance you're gonna finish early. This is probably one of the earliest vintages as far as people finishing up in recent memory. Um, it's got to be in the top one or uh, top two or three. Right. The other thing I've heard too that's really interesting is that it's not as large as it has been in the past, so the yields aren't as big. Yeah, yields are down. Uh, Adam Saduri said that his yields for some of his Pinot Noir uh, vineyards are down 40%. However, the um, the complexity of the fruit evidently is off the charts. Ah, so, those winemakers, they always say that. Uh, they, <laughs> uh, well, not all the time. Like, I remember 2012, which was a bumper. was a, I, I think, the largest um, yield so far, but, you know, consistently heard it's not very complex. Plex, you know, wasn't that interesting. So, you know, we'll, you know, we'll see. Uh, yeah, we'll have to wait till it's made, but it, it looks good. I mean, it certainly helps that there wasn't any uh, catastrophic rain at the wrong time. There's not a whole bunch of mold pressure and mildew. They had, you know, a lot of good things going their way. Um, but, you know, if you're a farmer, hey. Yeah, you live at the vestiges of the weather. The weather. I mean, that's just the, that's just the gig. You get paid by the ton, man. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you're getting less tonnage, you know, you, you're going to frown a little bit if you're a farmer. What we so who's, who's really going to be kind of uh, pinched on this is, I don't know if you, for those people that are, you know, I'm on a whole bunch of, too many people have my email. Let me put it that way. But I get all kinds of offers all the time. This wine, great bargain, blah, blah, blah. People that are really going to be pinched are, the, the bulk wine side of the equation because you know it's going to go down so prices eventually will have to go up and uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens there as far as wine prices because personally I think prices for wine are high enough but if uh, if the volume goes down then you know price got to go up yeah well, I went I went to the bottle barn the other day and you know how they have I talked to Ben Pearson He's a wine buyer there, and he said this year that they spent – it was a record for the amount of uh, monies that they spent on the Harvest Fair um, wine winners. He said it was, it was an all-time record. <laughs> I went in there. It was on a like – In terms of per- purchase, they bought a bunch of Harvest Fair winners? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and just a dollar amount that they spent. And he, and he was um, – it was a Saturday, and you, typically you wouldn't see him in, there on a Saturday. And it was just like – the parking lot was just packed and people were just going in there. But there's so many great Harvest Fair wines and all of them, I mean, not all of them, but a, a good percentage of them are priced at less than 20 bucks a bottle. And, you know, just incredible values with a lot of good wines. And that's a result of just having some very good vintages back to back. So right, it's, it's looking good for consumers right now. Yeah. Well, and good for the winemakers too. They're they're moving their juice. Yeah, man, that's what it's all about. You don't want it sitting around. Conversely, they had that problem in Australia with with it sitting around, and what did they have to do? They had to destroy it. So yeah, that's that seems like a crime at some level. So uh, 
So speaking of vestiges of the weather and the business, um, our friends, the, uh, the petrochemical pharma pharmaceutical company bear looks like they're in a little bit of hot water. You know, I don't know what it is with these companies lately, but what I'm noticing is they always, they're, they're starting to seem to, to do the right thing. It's almost like they, they're really opposed to facing any type of litigation. They look at the problem, they figure out what happened, they accept, they accept responsibility, they make their payments and they move on. Yeah, I, well, I think the, the regulatory environment has gotten to the point where you know, if you have science that says, you know, you made a mistake or, um, you know, a lot of these things too, you, you know, things work great in the lab, right? And then, yep. you know, you go out and put them in the real world and it's like, what, what happened? You just can't, uh, well, you know, sort of summed up by the, uh, the mathematician in Jurassic Park who says nature finds a way, right? Yes. Um, you just can't control it all. And this, uh, so we're talking about a, 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 a product that Bear produced, um, which I think was a fungicide called Moon Privilege, and it ended up actually. Uh, when they have some nice words in the in the in the post called atypical symptoms, but bottom line, it, it basically I don't know it it caused the grapes not to produce right the vines not. To yeah, it, it basically killed their entire uh, year's crop. For a few bars. Um and we're and it's not small. It's six million bottles of wine. So the berries actually developed, but they didn't grow. And Bear, you know, Bear kind of took responsibility and is going to just pay for this thing. It looks like. Yeah, and it's interesting that they're taking responsibility because they really don't know what happened. You know, the problem they don't they don't know exactly what happened yet. So they're they're making a compensation without even having a clear cause for 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 the reason that right two hundred seventy nine million dollars worth um, or I should say two hundred seventy nine million dollars is what the product line uh, makes in revenue so that's their sales and gotcha. it's been around for twenty twelve so it's not it's new it's new and it's this this was this affected vineyards. Uh, France, Italy, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, kind of, you know, all over Europe. Right. Which is uh, not so good. Um, but, it, like, you know, it's it, on one hand, it's good to see that the uh, that they're taking action. The other, like, I, you know, the other thing is, is, like, what do they know that they're not saying? Yeah, it is interesting. They're, they're taking on the baton of it's our, it's our fault and uh, here's some money and, okay, let's move on now. Yeah. Nothing to see here. Yeah, keep moving. <laughs> Everybody move along. Move along. Move along. And you know, with those contracts, when you accept those payments, of course, you know, you uh, you sign off that you're not going to sue them for anything else that might come up and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, you're basically signing away your rights to, to future litigation or any other issues. So that's, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a good play on their part on both ends. They're taking care of business. Um, they're, uh, you know, I mean, they say that. There's no such thing as bad press, but I think this is bad press. <laughs> you really don't want that floating around that you're selling um, uh, a fungicide that's... You know, it's bad for the industry, too, because I, I believe that people perceive that that wine is sort of a... Uh, I'm going to use the word pristine product, but like not very... A product that's not altered that much in the minds yeah. of consumers. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, I don't have it's any just, proof Bill, it's of this. just grapes. Right. It's just, I mean, it's crushed grapes that get fermented. And what, what could be in there? Yeah, what, uh, what possibly could be in there? And to see, you know, a picture of the big John Deere tractor with the spray booms on it, rolling so through the, it. rolling through the, and I don't know if those are grapes or not, but uh, they have a picture of a tractor basically spraying. Yeah, those aren't grapes. (laughs) Yeah, but people don't. I mean, so the difference is in a grape vineyard, the tractor's a little bit higher, and it you know the booms go out across the the uh, the vines, and it rolls down the middle, you know, in between the vines, right? So I I just like I think that this is I think it's a really good point that you make that this isn't good for anybody in the business. Yeah, 
Yeah, you, um, you know, poison wine. I mean, you want to talk about, well, so first of all, it's something that isn't necessarily good for you. It's certainly not good for you in quantity, you know, alcohol. And then, you know, to have it, have it have like pesticides in it that, you know, can, could do damage to you. Like it could really hurt the business. We shouldn't be drinking it in the first place. There's certainly a bunch of people in that camp that span a variety of reasons from health to religion on yeah. why you shouldn't indulge. And then, you know, to have it actually like do damage to you because it's got some fungicide in it could be really bad. Yeah. That, that's, that, that's, it's not good, but uh, they're doing the right thing, man. Bravo to them. Yeah. Good for them. We'll be seeing them in court with the, with the kid who's got a hand grown out of his ear. Oh, geez. Or so there's that too, right? Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of traffic about um, a restaurateur in New York who is trying to completely change the way that Americans dine. And specifically what I'm speaking about is Danny Meyer, um, Union Square Restaurant Group, who wants to eliminate tipping or is eliminating tipping. Um, And a pretty extensive uh, post in New York Eater, which is a blog, um, about uh, uh, Danny and why he's doing this. So he's uh, trying to do it. The key term that we'll all be seeing if he gets his way is hospitality included. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know, Bill. I, you know, I, I don't know about you, but when I was uh, when I was in my younger years, you know. My college days, I waited a lot of tables. That's just what I did. And, it, and it, it took me all of about three seconds to figure out where I wanted to be in the restaurant because all the money was at the front of the house. So I started waiting tables. But the, the gap in pay between the front end of the house and the back end of the house is glaring. And what he's trying to do here. And in the article, it's it's a fairly extensive article. What we're talking about is legislative engineering, you know, when it comes to wages and the unintended consequences, therefore, after, you know, what, what's going to happen after that. And he's really, like you said, trying to change something. Danny Myers trying to change something that's been in effect for hundreds of years. Well, at least in the States, right? In other places in the world, hospitality is included. Yeah, well, I'm saying here in the United States, yeah, this is what he's trying to do is he's trying to bring up, bring along the European model because in Europe, you know, they don't they don't do the tipping thing. The house, the the house makes sure that uh, the employees are are paid. Yeah, and I have to say that that um, you know, with the advent of things like the you know, Food Network TV and the Food Channel and all this stuff. The f- be- being a restaurateur, I think, has some more, as all my opinion, more legitimacy than it might have been in the past. Um, you know, you see more people doing it. Um, and in Europe, you know, it's definitely, you know, you could be a professional waiter in Europe. That's what you do in France. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's how you make your living. It's not, you know, here it's a supplemental income thing. There are people who are very professional about it. That's, uh, you know, that's what they do. So I, you know, it, 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 his timing might be right. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but yeah. there, you know, he's got a, There's some nice quotes, right? You know, I see nights where ra- waiters were, qu- were crying because somebody from Europe walked out without leaving a tip. Now, I don't know in California, but I do know in places that I waited tables on or was involved in restaurants where, you know, the wait staff, front of house staff didn't even make minimum wage because they were on tips. They didn't have to be paid minimum wage. Um, So, you know, like I empathize with that quote, like, you know, you're waiting on a table that they're, you know, it's three, four hundred dollar meal where you're. I mean, you're literally, the service level is pretty high and, you know, you're expecting a, you know, $50 tip, 20 to $50 tip, um, or higher, uh, it would be crying. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, don't, I can see both sides of that. I mean, having been in that, I've, I've had to wait on, I've, wor- I've worked in some high profile restaurants and I've had to wait on people that were in Europe and they would, you know, we would take care of them. I would do all the things I was supposed to do and they wouldn't leave a tip, you know, but I knew that they knew. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they knew that they're supposed to tip. They're traveling, you know, they know what's going on, but that's kind of their, but that's, that's going to happen. Now, let's be clear about this. We're talking about New York City. Yeah. This, and, yeah. This, is, this is just New York City they're talking about. Right. So it's, Steve Hymioff has a good post, sort of a rebuttal to this about this might work really great in New York, but not sure it's going to work here in San Francisco. Yeah. So to, to, to come to your point about how you got paid and how it works is you, what you're talking about is you're talking about that minimum. Like when I waited tables, I think I mean, this is quite a while ago. Yeah. I mean, we were getting, we were getting paid like $2 an hour or something. It was, you know, it, 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 it was a little bit, it was like one of those things where you're going to the restaurant and it's like, Hey, I need a gig. And it's, you know, I never forget the first time it happened. It's like, well, what's my hourly rate? And they tell you, and you're like, what? what? Is that? Did you leave off a, a decimal place somewhere? What are you talking about? <laughs> and then, you know, it's followed up by, well, we make all these tips. And good establishments, oftentimes you're brought in by a friend. So, you know, they're giving you the real deal. Now, yeah. I, I happen to work in a restaurant where I worked in the kitchen, and we made a percentage of the tips. Well, in, in a lot of the your hiring restaurants, typically the way it works is, okay, uh, the, the waiters make the lion's share of the money, okay? But the waiters can't do – they recognize their job's not – there's already kind of a system in place. They know that their job can't possibly be done without the aid of all the employees and everyone else is working together. So let's just say I draw $300 uh, gross tips that night. I'll give a percentage of that to – um, my busser, I'll give a percentage of that to the food runner, the expediter. I'll give a percentage to the maitre d' or the hostesses. I'll give a percentage to the cooks. I'll give a percentage to the dishwashers. You know, I'll spread it around. That's and exactly I'll, what happened in the restaurant I worked in. Yeah. And, I, and we got tipped. Actually, we got a nice percentage of the the wait staff's tips because as uh, being in, you know, being in the kitchen and being on the line, you know, they, you know, if they, if things got, there was advantages to tipping well, the tipping the kitchen staff well. Exactly. Your dishes came out earlier. They came out, you know, you paid a little little more attention to detail on things because it's like, ah, you know, this guy's cut me or this gal's cut me some cash. It mattered. Yeah, yeah, it mattered. And if you got in the bind and somehow you spaced out somebody's meal and you needed something on the fly, bam, it got done real quick if you tipped well. Yeah. Um, and don't forget the uh, the wine waiter or the sommelier. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, you, yeah. spread, you, you spread the you spread the money around. Now, how it works in New York is that minimum wage for or that uh, minimum uh, what do they call it? Uh, minimum tip wage or not tip the tip minimum? It's five bucks for servers. And uh, the minimum wage in the city is eight seventy five. So, you know, you have a you could have a person working in the kitchen that's making eight seventy five nine bucks an hour, and you could have a waiter that's making five bucks an hour. But if you add on the tips, the waiter is making substantially more than than the, um, a, a, an employee that's working in the back of the house. And what's causing all of the turmoil here? is that uh, last month, Governor Cuomo proposed raising the minimum wage for all workers to $15 an hour. Now, when you look at that on its face, you're thinking, ah, you know, God, that sounds good. You know, a little. <laughs> but it, but, it, but if, you, if you look a little bit further into it, if you're a waiter, you're going, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Well, first of all, eight seventy-five an hour in New York City Oh, I, I really? Come on. I don't, where are you, where are you going to live? I don't know. I, I not don't in know New where, York City. No, well, and not anywhere, not anywhere close to it, <laughs> unless you're living with, you know, in a dorm with, you know, seven other people in a, you know, 700 square foot house or something. Which is, 
which partner. is why it's going up. What? Which is why he's proposing it go up to fifteen. Well, it's oh. even at even even at fifteen, fifteen dollars an hour, like fifteen dollars an hour in San Francisco. I mean, it definitely. Don't get me wrong; it definitely helps. But but here's the thing: not only is he proposing that it go to fifteen dollars an hour across the board for all employees, he's also proposing eliminating the tipped minimum. This is a big deal. I mean, that's huge. What he's saying is no more. He's proposing the governor is kind of in a way saying no more tips. Everyone's just going to get paid 15 bucks. That's that's nutty. And that, yeah, that's really. uh, So first of all, that's just that that sort of flies in the face of American capitalism. Yes. You know, I'm, you know, sort of back to the whole restaurant conversation. We do have an ethic in the United States about spreading it around, or at least we used to. It was certainly baked into me. That, what are you talking about? Redis, redistribution of wealth? Well, I, yeah, in that you had some obligations. I'm not, and obligation's a strong word, but there was an ethic that, you know, yeah, you go out somewhere, things are good, you got the cash, you know, you leave a few extra bucks. Yeah. That's just what you do, man. I mean, it's just kind of, and and there are examples of this today um, that uh, you know I think less so. But there, it, it's more the exception rather than the rule today. But you know, uh, and, and I don't have any data on whether or not this is true. But it seems like that that was sort of the ethic, and um, you know, restaurant. This was the restaurant structure as well. Right. You know, you got paid a lower minimum wage, and you 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 worked. It was a meritocracy in terms of you provide good service, you get paid for it. You know, there was a direct correlation to your effort and people paying you. Now, you know, granted, everybody's got a different calibration on how much they should pay for that service, but that was kind of the deal. This completely changes that model. And there's precedent right now happening, right? So Uber, you take an Uber, and for those of you who don't know what Uber is, it's a ride-sharing service where... Um, you can get on your mobile phone and fire up this app and uh, press a button on the app and a car shows up and will take you wherever you want to go. Okay, Bill, real quick, I got a question for you. Who in our audience that's listening to us doesn't know what Uber is? Well, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> I mean, maybe there are people who aren't. I mean, if you've got to be living under a rock, you don't know who Uber is. Oh, okay. But the, my, my whole point in that is there's no tipping. Yeah, you know, I'm used to riding around in a cab in a major metropolitan city, and you you give them a tip. Not with Uber, you get in the car and you do your ride and you get out, and that's that's it. And let me tell you, the first time I took it, I was actually in New York City, and it was kind of weird getting out of the car and not handing the Uber driver. Like I even asked, like I knew, and I still asked. I'm like, no tip. He's like, no tips. It was, yeah, I, I it, love that the tip's baked into the cost. Well, <laughs> right? So everybody likes the fact that it's baked into the cost. So it'll be interesting to see if this uh, – you know, I don't know if the economics will work here, but it'll be interesting to see if other um, municipalities will try this. Well, get, getting back to, getting back to the, the wages, and this is all about trying to fix the disparity between the front and the back of the house – the tip minimum is going up, you know, i.e. for waiters, they're, they're looking at, and this is starting in January. We're talking a couple months from now. It's going up to $7.50. So they're getting a 50% increase in their wage right off the bat. But the minimum for the cooks, people that are in the house, in the back of the house, is going up $0.25. Cents. It's going up to $9.00. So this is definitely going to help out waiters, but it's only making or anyone that gets tipped, but it's, it's only making a disparity between the front and the rear of the house even greater. So what Danny's trying to do is he's trying to promote the idea that we're all working together, like I was talking before, and we're all responsible for the people coming to the restaurant and coming back. So there needs to be more wage parity. So that what he's, that's what he's essentially trying to accomplish. Yeah, I don't know if he's going to pull it off, but when he does this, he's going to. You know, there's just so many things in this article. <laughs> well, no, I think it's a you know great that he's doing that and, and trying to align 
compensation to service delivery is just a, a smart idea, right? It's just a good idea. Um, yeah, in order for him to do it, though, Bill, he's going to have to raise the prices substantially. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, so I, and you know, instead of that uh, twelve dollar salad or thirteen dollar salad that you're looking at, you're going to be looking at a sixteen, seventeen dollar salad. And you know, I mean, he's he's looking at putting a twenty to twenty five percent premium on top of the menu for what you already percent. Thirty percent. That is that's. I mean, talk about some sticker shock. And what makes it even more amazing? Sure, he owns thirteen restaurants. But how many restaurants are in New York? I mean, he's leading the charge, but who else is going to do this? Which brings us back to what uh, I, I believe you mentioned, uh, Steve, talking about how this was tried a while back. And actually, I think it still goes on in some of the high, high-end restaurants. I know that the French Laundry um, tips included in the meal. But how often do you go to the French Laundry? Who goes to the French Laundry? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, people who can afford it, right? That's a that's a different type of restaurant, right? So, although uh, does it does it I, I don't know does a smaller end restaurant have to raise their prices thirty percent? Maybe not. Maybe it's a fifteen to twenty percent raise, and that's kind of what you're tipping. I don't know. I just I kind of I have a thing with the government trying to legislate what's right, and this is kind of what this smacks of. He's not the government, but he's trying to kind of make up for an inequity that's, that's, as you would say, or as we would say, has already been baked into the system for hundreds of years. Right. You know, if you want to make more money, get yourself to the front of the house somehow. <laughs> that's, that's basically how, how it works. So this whole thing of what he's doing is it's going to change. And it's because of a lot of regulations that are coming in in New York, they're changing, um, they're changing their overtime laws. Uh, state sick leave is getting ready to be changed where it's going to be mandatorily required. Um, and it's going to change the way the restaurants are put together. Um, the biggest thing is there's this new wage ordinance guarantees that city fast food workers, and this was in the news a, a, a while ago, are going to receive a minimum wage of $10.50 as of December, and that's going to climb to $15 in three years. This puts an undue pressure on higher-end restaurants because – in theory, if you're working in the kitchen at a nicer restaurant, you could you could seriously consider go to go working at McDonald's or Burger King and make more money. <laughs> you know, I, that's just not going to happen. That is not going to happen. No way. It's just. I, you Are know, you sure? Yeah, I am. I am. And, the, and those people that do that, that make that change, are going to last like a, if a week, if that. Oh, my God. I mean, if you want to go have the same job experience day by day, I don't think people who work in a high-end restaurant are going to survive at McDonald's. Yeah, you probably – you, you, you have a valid point. It's just not – it's not going to happen. And, it, you know, and if, and, and if you're truly that mercenary, more power to you. <laughs> And I would also I would also say you might want to look beyond the hospitality industry. Yeah, and and the point is that you know there's a, a glaring uh, lack of you can't make it. You can't go to a culinary school and pay thirty thousand or forty thousand dollars or whatever it is for your education, and then go work in the kitchen cutting up potatoes and making you know. $30,000. All right. So, you know, we can have the culinary school conversation too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I Let's mean, do that. I mean, you know, uh, well, we've heard, we, I mean, we've heard chefs talk about that too. You know, I, it is very much a business that you can learn by just going and doing it and putting in your, um, I was just reading a cookbook this week about a chef who, when he was starting out, was working 96-hour weeks. Oh, my gosh. That's just nutty. And it's after a certain – we talked about this before. I mean, I think after 50, 55, 60 hours, you're, you're pretty much you – know, you're not worth anything anyway. And he, um, you know, he didn't go to culinary school. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, I've heard, and I've heard chefs – I've heard chefs say that. Like culinary school graduates – you know, are, um, 
Well, let me relate it to my industry. There are plenty of people in the software business who go and get degrees at, um, you know, these. there are plenty of um, private institutions that say, hey, come take this, you know, come take this program and, you know, you're going to get this awesome job. You know, so pay us 50K, go in debt, and you're going to get a 100K job. Well, that doesn't happen ever. Yeah. And, and in fact, there are people who come out of these programs and hiring managers who look at them in a very negative light in terms of I'm never hiring these type of people because they just can't do the job. And right. I think culinary school has some um, – That's a little bit of that. has a little bit of that. I would also say that if you're successful in the kitchen by doing – by going and doing and then go to culinary school, that may not be a bad path. Because you're going to learn techniques at that school that you're not going to get from your current environment. So it's a lot like, um, you know, it's a lot like school in general in that you do a bunch of stuff first and then you go to the schoolhouse to learn the theory and the technique. But I, I hear from chefs all the time about, ah, I don't want a culinary school grad that's never worked in a kitchen before. That's true. You, ideally, you want somebody who's done both. You know, I mean, you, you work in a kitchen for, you know, f- what, three to five years or, you know, up to 10 years. And then you go to Cordon Blue and you come out of Cordon Blue successfully. You're probably going to it's probably going to do what you would expect it to do in terms of your opportunity cost. You're going to have better access to jobs. You're going to know a whole lot more. And it's probably going to give you the freedom to go do sort of pursue what you want to pursue in that profession, be it travel overseas and work overseas, go to work for a big, you know, go to work for a you know, go to work for an organization like Danny Meyer, um, you know, that's got multiple restaurants that you can travel around. Um, so it has its place, but, uh, you know, going, going from high school to culinary school, good luck. Yeah, that's good luck. So another thing uh, that was brought up in this article that I, that I find really interesting and, and having owned restaurants, I mean, I'm sympathetic to what he's trying to do. It's just a huge undertaking. Um, he's really exposing himself in, to just an incredible amount of risk just because he's raising, he's going to have to raise the price so much. So he's, he's risking scaring off his service staff by changing the way that they make money. I mean, waiters are, you know, what? <laughs> I can't accept tips. Just the idea. I'm not even in that field, but just the whole idea that I can't accept tips because that's how they're motivated is, is, is really is going to be interesting. So he's, cu- he's coming up some, against something really tough there. He's going to have to pay higher credit card processing fees because the prices are going to be higher. He's going to have to renegotiate with landlords um, because uh, typically they uh, base how they pay their rent on triple net. And it's going to be great for people that own the buildings because as the price goes up, they're going to make they're going to get more money from the restaurant tour and they're not even the volume's not even going up. Um, and he's going to have to say sayonara to his spike of credit, which is uh, it's a part of the law that gives restaurants huge breaks for paying waiters and tips. So uh, for a restaurant of his size, he's looking at a tax credit of a million to a million and a half that he's going to lose off the top. So, and he's got a, he has investors <laughs> that he has, to, you know, they're investing because they're making money. So he has to make all of this sound good and tell them that everything's going to be okay and they're still going to make money. I don't see how he's going to pull it off, Bill. Yeah, I don't, it, it, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I was just going to, well, I was going to say, I think you're right about the regulation. I, you know, so some regulation is good, like trying to have a minimum wage. Good thing. You know, there there was, uh, I, I think, a point in time where, well, I don't know you see, there's, there's data on both sides of the fence saying it's good or a bad thing. I think if you monkey with the formula too much, it's going to, it's going to, it, it, it crumbles. So what I'm saying is if you're going to regulate, do it as simply as possible. And then. Uh, you know, I think the premise of what he's trying to do is a good thing, right? Which is trying yeah. to equalize the the uh, amount of money people make in in, in light of trying to um, provide 
getting everybody on the same page with regard to providing the service that they need to provide. If that, yeah. if that makes sense. So it's like, I'm, I, you know, if we all work together, everybody's got a better chance of making some decent money. But I think it's pretty, it is bad that they say in this article that, you know, a front of house captain that can make, that's been there 10 years, uh, a brand new one in three months can make the same amount of money. Yeah, that's in the article. So, you know, there's a lot of things they're trying to monkey on. I think the best thing about, about it all, at least somebody's trying something. Yeah, he's trying something, and it's and it's probably you know he's recognizing that this this uh, this wave of uh, I mean I think the fast food thing I never really thought that it was going to be that big of a deal, but I when that started about a year ago, I mean it's it really has it's changing the way restaurants operate. I mean obviously it's changed. That money's got to come from somewhere, and you know if if your burger that you're buying in your fast food joint. You can't tell me the price of that burger is going to go up if they're paying their employees. If they're paying instead of paying them uh, seven dollars and fifty cents, they're paying them thirteen dollars. The money's got to come from somewhere, so it's going to be increased prices everywhere in restaurants, which uh, just makes me all the more grateful that I know how to cook. So I'll be I'll be okay, I suppose. You know, I'll just have to eat out less. Yeah, <laughs> you won't even notice. <laughs> I won't even notice. Just ask your legislator. Um, so I, um, let's do one more. Got to get rolling. Um, you want to talk about uh, the harsh, drunken truth on wine? Yeah, let's talk. Yeah, let's talk about that. So you and I go to a few of these things. Yeah, yeah, we've been and, to a few tray tastings. And one of the things I learned after my first tasting was to drink like a pro, which means you don't drink anything. <laughs> yeah. Don't swallow. You, yeah, exactly. You basically spit out everything. Now, before I went and I learned that you shouldn't do that because you're, you're, there's, you, it's like impossible after a while. Um, you're like, oh, good, free wine. But you go and try to drink it all. Um, it's, uh, it, it has a bad outcome. But yeah, there's always, uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry to mean stuff. No, I was just, but it, yeah, this thing is, um, you know, it's it's full of bad behavior by people who go to these things. Well, that's what that's what Joey Costco is saying. You know, I haven't noticed that as much as I mean, the one where I notice to where it becomes, uh, you know, for lack of a better phrase, a, a drunk fest is years and years ago. The um, the zap tasting used to be like that. And well, they realized it was a problem, so they changed it up. I, I mean, so I've noticed that the tastings that we've been to, the trade, you know, once the, the trade is winding down and the public starts to get in, there's a definite change in the energy in the room. Yes. Um, you know, it becomes very much more lively and, um, you know, less... I mean, there's a, there's a switch from, you know, the people who are having a, who have to make a living you know, tasting and selling wine versus people are just there to enjoy it. So it makes complete sense. Now we have been to a tasting recently that I thought it was hilarious that they had put a guard on some of the food. It was an Italian tasting and they brought out the lovely Parma ham. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, that was great. And there was a guard on the Parma ham. (laughs) For good reason, man. Yeah. And, and he talks about how people like rush the food that definitely happened. That yeah. stuff came out and there was just a, like the place, it was easy to get a taste then. Yeah. Because it was empty. Everybody was chowing down. Now, this wasn't a huge tasting, but I I, I definitely noticed that um, there. I have to say, I haven't noticed a lot of bad behavior. I haven't either. Just um, a few broken glasses here and there. I, I haven't either. So, I don't, you know, I think. Uh, you know, maybe they're not as well behaved in New York or something. <laughs> it could be. It I could don't know. Should, you know. Or Texas, or I don't know. I mean, I mean, we haven't been anywhere but San Francisco for these tastings, and the ones that I've been to have been very. I mean, it's professional. I mean, there are people. There's business going on, um, and you know, not a lot of people. There's you know, there's obviously media running around. So you know, you definitely don't want to be in the business and then you know have your picture in the papers. You took out a, a, a table. 
Right, right. Because you're yeah. stumbling around drunk. Um, I just haven't seen a lot of bad behavior that way. Well, I'm trying to think if I – I have seen one recently. Uh, when I went to California Winemakers, I saw, I saw – and I don't know who these guys were in the business, but uh, they had obviously uh, – I this was from afar, and it just seems like they had known each other in the past. And um, one of the gentlemen had obviously had too much to drink, and he was uh, raising his voice and uh, you know ready to throw down right there you know, just outside one of the rooms. Oh, wow. A fight. Awesome. <laughs> I was like coming to blows, huh? Wow. Yeah. I was like, well, that's my cue. It's time to leave. <laughs> I tried all I need to try. And this was one Terry was, uh, she was actually waiting for me, um, in the, uh, cause she didn't attend, but we drove down together and she was, uh, waiting for me in the, uh, in the other room. And time I, came, to roll. I said, well, it's time to go. <laughs> time to roll. But uh, you know what happens, and that's what happens when you swallow. So here's a couple of things, um, just a short list of how you can su- survive these tastings when you go to them. It doesn't have to be a trade tasting, but any big wine tasting. Uh, rule number one is wear black clothing. Uh, you know, that'll help you out because Why? not so much about what you would do, but what other people might do. Yes. <laughs> so and you do black- have to spit this wine out. Yes. So wear black clothing. Um I guess uh, one of the other things that I always do is uh, have a have a substantial and a good meal uh, right before you go, which is always a good thing because an empty stomach and, and, and wine are, are not a good thing. Uh, and thirdly, and, and most importantly, as we already mentioned, is use the spit bucket. And in this article, Joey Casco, he's talking about the way that they position the spit buckets. And he's right. The spit buckets are on the tables where the wines are. So, you know, you have a person, they come up to get a taste and obviously you swirl it and you've got your nose in it and you're in the way. So the people that are behind that might have wine in their mouth, they're like, well, I need to get rid of this, but I can't get to the spit bucket. So that's why people, a lot of people end up swallowing because it's just a big hassle to get to the bucket. So his solution is to have buckets placed at tables conveniently throughout the the venue, not exactly where the wines are. And then that way people can have access to them. What I do is I just take a cup around. Yeah, and they I have, have that at yes. all the little, uh, all of the other tastings. They've caught onto this. You just have a little cup. Cup fills up and then you find a spit bucket. Three and words, red solo cup. Yeah, that's the way to go. Just spit it out. It's way better. You're not going to get it all over yourself when you're trying to spit in that silly bucket. And, it's and the yours. Four- you're not exactly. getting you're not getting splash back from you're not uh, getting the backsplash yeah. exactly you know it it um it's uh it's, it's not the most etiquette thing it, it's not the most coolest looking thing but you know hey it's got to be done and uh the fourth and most important thing and i i don't i don't remember people talking about this too much but there's always water there and drink a bunch of water even though you're not swallowing it's still a good idea to stay hydrated. Yeah. And I mean, you're on your feet, it gets hot in these places. So that, that's great advice. That's great advice. I I would add a couple other things too. You might want to think about. So they definitely, uh, I believe every tasting I've been to, there's some type of food um, laying around. Yeah. You know, one of the things, one of the, I guess, techniques that I've learned from you is kind of trying things without having your palate um, influenced by anything else. So, you know, you're going to a particular, let's say you're going to Zap, which is all Zinfandel, you know, having the Zins that you want to, or tasting the Zins you want to taste first without having that food. And then the ones that you're really interested in, you can go back and have food with them. That's interesting. The other thing that we've done um, that I think is a great idea is like, wow, I just tasted all this great wine, but I love this one wine. So what, we have done in the past is we'll taste through a particular tasting and then at the end go back and have the actual taste of the wine or a couple of wines that we liked. I mean, they're, you know, you're not getting like a massive pour or anything, but you can have kind of a little glass and a little repast before you leave. It's kind of a nice way to cap out everything. Yeah. And the, and the whole idea for me, you know, I'm probably the, the world's worst, you know, evaluator right on the spot. And these aren't really the best ways to actually evaluate a wine. I mean, you've got, you know, potentially hundreds of wines around. 
You got a bunch of people. You don't know what they're wearing. Some people, some people bathe before others don't. You got people wearing cologne. I mean, it's just not a good spot to really evaluate a wine and give it its, its, its true due. Right. Um, you know, when I, a lot of times if I'm, if I'm telling our listeners about a wine, it's because I'm pretty intimate with the wine. I've had it several times. I've had it with dinners. I've had it without dinner. I really know the wine. And that's really the best way to evaluate a wine is over an evening, I think. So, yeah. and if anybody's got, I, the other, the, another challenge for me personally is trying to keep track of everything you've tasted. Um, and I've been noodling on this particular problem for a while. Um, and honestly, the best thing that I've found is pen and paper, they, yeah. you know, and they often give you a little program. Um, you know, I've tried taking pictures of every bottle. That's really problematic because it's hard to get into the table sometime and you're, you know, then you're consuming space. I've tried all the wine apps, um, or most of them anyway. Um, and you know, you, you know, with a hundred plus, uh, bottles or different wines in these particular things, you know, just using their program and using some simple system, you know, of, uh, and and really, I think what's come down to for me is they're just trying to pick out the exceptions. Yeah. You know, and that's the only thing you care about. So that's what you make note of. Yeah, that's true. And that's, that's basically what I do. You know, it's a, it's a one, two, three, you know, you know, bet, you know, good, really good. Excellent. You know, yeah. And I'll have to say it's very, I have yet to go to these things where, you know, the, uh, you know, it, it doesn't fall into good, very good or excellent. Yeah. Usually the bar is pretty high. You know, the bar is pretty high. And in fact, you know, um, like West of the West that we went to, holy smokes, there was, I didn't put anything in my mouth that I wouldn't have bought. Yeah. It was all, that was hard because it was all good. That's just, and you know, I know those wines well, so that, you know, may be more accessible to me personally. But anyway, um, these tips are good things if you're going to go. The other thing is if you ever get a chance to go to these things or if you have a variety, a varietal that you really like, I'd pay to go to one. You're going to learn so much from just going and experiencing one of these things. It's worth the cash in my mind. Well, uh, on that note, Bill, I was at, uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about this. I was at my, uh, my annual, the uh, Institute of Masters of Wine, their annual champagne tasting. And uh, the way that I figured out, this is, <laughs> this is what I did. And it now, was- I would be drinking all of that. <laughs> and it isn't as much. You might be able to get away with it. But uh, it worked really well. What I did was I got there early and I went and I, I just went in before they opened the venue and took a picture of all the bottles and lined up. Oh, well, that's cool. And then that was that was kind of the way I dealt with it. And that's I mean, obviously, people aren't going to get a chance to do that. But that's that was a way that was easier for me to keep track of stuff. So then I could just focus on the wines and not worry about having to do the picture thing, because it is a pain to try to do that. You know why you're tasting and juggling the notes and yeah i mean are you are you, you know if you're uh, you almost need somebody just dedicated to taking pictures so they were having uh just on a note they were having just outside the property they had it at the hyatt on fisherman's wharf and as we're pulling up they were having a labor dispute so there's a woman out there with their group with their bullhorn it, like, it happens often it happens often it's it like great it's just every time they go to negotiate contracts with the service workers, there's, you know, the usual protesting. All righty. Um, so I, I, um, I have a beverage tip for this week. So I, uh, it, it is sort of around Oktoberfest. It was in Costco this week. It's not a wine recommendation. It's beer, but I found a five liter mini keg of Hofbrau Oktoberfest Meritzen, um, God, that sounds good. You know what? It, you know what? It's, it was a great deal, obviously. Um, but if you go to your local Costco, you can probably find this thing. I know they do vary by store to store in terms of what they carry with regard to wine. They have some discretion, wine and beer. Um, but if you find this thing, it's a good deal. And it, it works really great. It's a little mini keg. It kind of keeps things sealed up. You kind of let the gas out. You pour yourself a pour and, you know, slide the pour tube back in and you're put it back in the fridge or keep it in the fridge. It worked out really kind of cool. So, and I think it was right around 20 bucks, probably a little less. Okay. 
But uh, for five liters, that's not a bad, you know, it's like 10, 10 pints maybe, I guess, 10, 500 milliliter um, uh, classes. So kind of fun. It was fun. How about you? Any wines that you're... Uh, you know, I don't, I don't really have anything that I've tried recently uh, that... Well, actually, I do have... I don't have any notes on it in front of me or anything, but, you know, what I did have recently was I'd been drinking a lot of Suave, <laughs> so I had the 2014 uh, Pan Suave Classico. Um, anything from these guys is yeah, it's good it's, stuff. It's good. And the price point's really right. It was, uh, you can get it 15, 17 bucks. Yeah, right one of the great up. things about Suave, right, is it's just a, it's, it's undiscovered at some level. It's still a really good deal. Yeah, I just have it. I had, um, I had a, a, a pesto dish that I cut with the little um, goat cheese, goat cheese and pesto on pasta. I know that sounds weird. <laughs> but, yes, well, no, it works great. In fact. But it works. No, no, it works really good. And I had that um, uh, with the pure pan. And um, that, that's a cannot. match. That's a match. Yeah, because that, that wine's going to cut the uh, the fat. Yeah. Um, or the richness of that, the, the cheese, and, uh, and also going to stand up to the sharpness of that cheese. The pungentness of the goat cheese. That sounds delicious. How much of that Martin do you have left? I got enough for you to come over and have some. <laughs> there we go. There we go. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> All right. I'm around later. I'll take you up on All that. All righty. Come by. <laughs> so um, should we close it out? Yeah, let's close yeah. it out. Um, we got some st- – you know what we should do is we have a bunch of stuff that we find that's kind of interesting. We should figure out a way to like um, – uh, maybe put those up also because I mean we have a, a bunch of stuff in front of us that we never even talk about. Yeah, and, and, and so this is and so if you want to see everything that we're looking at, um, follow us on Twitter at Vino101Net. That's you know uh, Al posts every day things that he finds interesting, and we call the list from that and talk about it here on. Uh, the cast. So, um, and there's things that we don't talk about on the cast. There's three or four articles that we had out out today, um, including guy in Saudi Arabia, who's getting punished for making wine. Um, that's kind of crazy, but anyway, yeah, we can, you know, maybe we'll just add a set another section to the post on other things we didn't talk about. We thought it were interesting. Good idea. There was another blogger, um, on the, uh, there was an exchange I had with another blogger uh, earlier this week and they're talking about how terrible the laws were in Pennsylvania. And uh, (laughs) I want to send him this article. So you think they're bad in Pennsylvania. Why don't you go over to Saudi Arabia? Yeah. Well, you know, (laughs) it's all relative, right? So um, info at Vino101.net. If you want to send us email, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Vino101.net and tell a friend, tell a friend. Hey, thanks everybody for listening. Cheers. Cheers.